Welcome to the Mosh Zone, episode 94. Week 94, volume 94, motherfucking 94. How you going guys? How's your week been? Thank you for tuning in. So this week's guest is Adam from Orthodox and that will be coming up later in the show. So let's start off with the album of the week or albums of the week for this week. We start off with the new one from Left Behind and it's titled No One Goes to Heaven. It's out now on Pure Noise Records. Been following these guys for a while since their first release. This one is their third release. Now these guys, it's beefy, sexy, groovy, beatdown hardcore. I think this album really holds up well and will hold up well. And if you haven't discovered these guys yet, I think this is the perfect starting point. Also, mark my words, Left Behind are going to blow up off this release. Outstanding stuff. Like I said, so much intensity in their beatdown. A lot of anger, a lot of emotion. It's really well delivered. I just can't get enough of it. It's amazing. It's called No One Goes to Heaven. It's from Left Behind. And it's out now on Pure Noise Records. Our second album of the week goes to Vatican and their new album is titled Soul Impulse. That's Soul, S-O-L-E. It's out now on 1126 Records. These guys have been really, you know, grinding at it. They've delivered some good stuff going into this album. And this one blew me away. I was expecting a lot and I got a lot. These guys are at the forefront of a new style of metalcore and it is really well delivered. It's chaotic, it's intense, it's got so much riff, so much groove. Oh, amazing. I really think this album should be on your must-listen list for this week, if not for the year. And I'm really impressed. Well done, Vatican. Outstanding release. And like I said about the last album of the week, Mark my words, you are going to know this band going forward. People are going to be talking about this release for a long time. So that is by Vatican. It's called Soul Impulse, and it's out now on 1126 Records. Single of the week, it's been pretty quiet, to be honest. It's getting into that time of year where we don't get a lot of new music. We did get a new song, well actually two songs, one was more of an intro, but we did get a new actual song by Suicide Silence, it's called Love Me to Death, it comes from their upcoming album called Become the Hunter, which comes out Valentine's Day, February 14th, on Nuclear Blast Records. Now, it's not outstanding by Suicide Silence, this single, but... I mean, anything is better than what we had on that last album, as everyone should and probably knows about by now. So, I guess it gets single of the week because A, there's not a lot going on, but B, also, it's good to see that they've decided to go back to the heavies. I think we will get some better stuff, hopefully, from this album going forward, and hopefully the album stands out a lot more. But this track, it's okay. It does a few things. But as I said, it's single a week because it's just good to hear them being heavy again. The track's called Love Me to Death. It's by Suicide Silence. And the upcoming album it's off is called Become the Hunter, out February 14th on Nuclear Blast Records. 
The only other bit of housekeeping I got to do at the start of the show is the usuals. You know, the stuff that I have to say every week because it means the world to the show. Now, those are giving us a rating and review online, whether that's through iTunes podcasts, whether that's on Facebook, whatever it is, help us out with a rating and review. The other thing i got to say, of course, don't forget, guys, help us out by spreading the word about The Mosh Zone. Tell someone you know that likes podcasts about The Mosh Zone. Tell someone you know who likes heavy music about The Mosh Zone. Also, if you've got some time, share the podcast on your social medias. You know, just give the show a quick little share on your Facebook, your Instagram, your Twitter, whether that's on your stories, whatever it is, help us out. It's all invaluable and we notice it. And we're forever grateful when we see it. But enough of my jibber-jabber, enough of the ramblings. Let's get into the part of the show we're all tuned into for. This week, I got to sit down with Adam from Orthodox. First thing I got to say, thank you so very much, dude. Much love, much respect, much appreciated. Absolutely stoked to get Adam on the show Orthodox are one of those bands I think everyone needs to know about, and I certainly think they will when this new album comes out next year. So I was really excited to get one of my favorite up-and-coming bands on the show, and Adam delivered with an amazing chat. We get to know all about him, we get to know about his upbringing, we get to know about the band, and a little bit of insight into everything else along the way. That chat with Adam is coming up now. So let's kick things off. I always start with kind of the same question, which is, you know, growing up, um, not necessarily a heavy band, but do you remember an artist or a musician that opened to you a world that was music? Well, growing up, I actually, um, my family was in the country music industry. Uh, That's actually how my parents met. So I've been, you know, very, very aware of all the, the ins and outs of, I guess, the industry up at the very high end of the professional side, you know, for a long time. And for a while, you know, all I heard was what was on the radio. And then I was really into pretty much anything that my parents worked with. They they actually got uh, pretty high up with some of their acts. Uh, they had their own publishing company called API, which started by my grandfather um, and so for affiliated publishers and corporate. And, um, they basically, you could take, I think it was, my details may not be perfect here, but you could take 10 songs and $300 and go up to them. This was in the early nineties. So nobody had done anything like this yet, but you could take that to API and they would give you a full, you know, songwriters critique as well as potentially cut a song or sign you on to the, the publishing, uh, team. And they signed all sorts of acts from, you know, Keith Urban, Kenny Chesney, Tim McGraw, Joe Diffie, uh, all sorts of different, pretty decent sized country names. And um, so that's kind of what I grew up with listening to necessarily. But my whole family was musicians. My dad is still a a, a traveling folk and Americana uh, singer songwriter. He's probably one of the best acoustic guitar players that I know. Um, So I kind of have just been pretty involved in music for most of my life there wasn't necessarily one artist that made me decide to be a musician so much as there was like particular artists that you know carried my hand into what kind of music we ended up playing but 
I've, I've kind of always wanted to be a musician or a performer of some sort. So country, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're from Nashville, is that correct? Yes, sir. So, so country music is very much ingrained, um, from my knowledge, from the outside looking in, it's very much ingrained into the culture there. So, you know, your mum and dad are into it, it's all about it. Um, how do you, you know, transition from that into something that's, you know, more aggressive? Like, is there a natural progression or is it just by chance and mistake that you deviated away from country? First thing I can really trace it back to is one of two or three sources. Um, one being the Tony Hawk Pro Skater games. Oh, yeah. You know, they had crazy soundtracks. You know, that's where I first heard Rage Against the Machine, Goldfinger, Gangstar, Aesop Rock, System of a Down, all that stuff. You know, I heard for the first time through that because I would play those games relentlessly. Um, and then another was actually, uh, my neighbor, he was a bit older than me, but he had a little brother who was my age, and we all would hang out together all the time. Um, he was in the car with me and my mom. I think we are headed to Six Flags or something, and we hadn't even left the driveway yet, and my mom asked what we wanted to listen to, and he handed up a copy of Hybrid Theory. Mm. And, you know, Paper Cut starts playing, and my mom gets about, a minute into it before she turns it off. But <laughs> I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. Just hearing that first verse and like the, the distorted guitar and, or, and, and it's just, it was very, it was, it was just, that was probably the first glimpse I had into like that kind of music to my knowledge. Cause I was very young when that, you know, came out. And, um, I, so I would trace it back to that or my older cousin, um, I think I may have already been kind of into Lincoln Park and things like that, but my older cousin is the one that showed me, you know, Slipknot and Corn and all the like, you know, when you get past the, when you get darker than you could get on the radio with at the time, that was kind of what he showed me. And so I would say that was what kind of put me into that world was listening to that with the people that I looked up to at the time. And I even got to the point where, you know, I would go in and download the songs uh, off of like m- different MySpace profiles that people would upload it to. And uh, at the time I was young and my parents were obviously there in the country industry. This is the Bible belt and all that. So my mom wanted to read the lyrics to any record that I wanted to buy before she allowed me to buy it. So a lot of stuff I wanted to buy, I obviously wasn't allowed to. So I would go in and have a, a full record of, we'll say Slipknot and I would change the artist name and the <laughs> record name and keep the song title. So that way I could keep that hidden from her. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that, that's gotta be, that's quite a form of dedication. So, I mean, you know, were they always anti it or did it reach a stage? Like, did they think, all right, this isn't a phase anymore. He's definitely into this kind of music. And then did they also at any stage accept it? Do they just go, all right, it's not our cup of tea, but that's Adam's thing. They were never against the fact that it was heavy music to begin with. I think my mom just cut off the hybrid theory CD because she was like, I don't want to listen to this. <laughs> but <laughs> they were never against the heavy music necessarily. Um, it was just the, the content of it is what they were concerned with. Uh, and, you know, eventually I got my mom to sit down and read the lyrics to hybrid theory 
and she let me buy that. And then Meteor, I think the first band that even led up to any of that that she let me buy was uh, Good Charlotte. Oh. She let me buy The Young and the Hopeless by them. And then I kind of was like, okay, see, like bands that look like them and act like that, like it's not all the craziness that you're thinking that it is. And then she, you know, like I said, read the lyrics for Hybrid Theory, let me get that. Eventually Slipknot put out uh, Subliminal Verses, which is volume volume three, Subliminal Verses, which uh, there's like not a single curse word on the whole thing, I don't think. And she let me get that. And then I was able to be like, hey, look, it's not all terrible. And around that point, I started actually not quite that point, but a couple of years later, I started, you know, going to shows a little more often and, and found a real supportive uh, group of people throughout that. And they kind of accepted that it was more so who I was trying to, not who I was trying to be, but what I was becoming was a part of that scene. And since there was no negative, you know, connotation to it, for the most part, they were fine with it. They didn't really understand it, but they were, they were never, uh, they never told me that I couldn't be into it. They just kind of were careful of what aspects they let me into. What about, you know, it's quite um, a shift getting into, you know, guitar-driven in a way music. I mean, what what brought you in, you know, you said with Papercut when you heard that, it was kind of like, wow, the sound and stuff. Was it literally the sound of it or was it, that it was speaking to you about certain things or was it also part of maybe that it was a bit rebellious and it wasn't a common thing. So it was like, I can latch onto this because you know, it's not the norm. You know, I've even to this day, I get asked that question from people is like, what is it about that kind of music that, that really reached out to you for the first time? And I genuinely couldn't tell you. Cause I mean, I think that when you look back at it, it's like, Oh, this band is yelling at me about something that I wasn't even really old enough to comprehend the depth of the lyrics they were singing. It just, I don't know if it was because I was a bit of an angry kid or what, but it was just, it it was something that I loved right off the bat just from hearing it. And I mean, I wore those Lincoln park records, specifically hybrid theory reanimation and Meteora. I wore those out. And, uh, yeah, I, I really don't know. It may have been a collection of all three because I knew that that kind of music existed. I just never got to see it, never got to be a part of it, really. And back then, you know, the Internet wasn't so it wasn't so easy to obtain. If you weren't looking for it, you did not find that kind of music, mm. you know. And so it was just it was something so new and so foreign to me that it fascinated me and i think the fact that my mom was like completely against it i was probably 10 years old maybe 11 at the time so that of course i was like oh that's cool parents don't like it it must be sick so <laughs> i dove right in but you know i think that was kind of part of i was not a bad kid i never really did anything that bad but i was like heavy into skateboarding culture and things like that and that in itself back in you know late 90s early 2000s was all just mayhem you had like the zero team you know, skating into windows of public places and doing crazy things like that. And, you know, Bam Margera was a a big skateboarding celebrity at the time. So, you know, madness, mayhem, chaos, all that was like a part of that culture. But me being, you know, a preteen and again, in the Bible belt, I had a recreational uh, skate park that required you to wear helmets 
And that was about as close as I could get to that actual culture because aside from that, I was playing baseball, you know, three, four nights a week and, you know, doing mixed martial arts classes and other things that were quite organized sports and all that. So it was kind of another part of the culture I could latch onto and truly get into without, I guess, having to hurt myself or others. I don't know. (laughs) Well, you know, you mentioned earlier, you know, you started getting to shows. Do you remember... Is there any show in particular, whether it was the first one you attended or maybe like the fifth one you attended, but do you remember any of the early shows that you went to and um, what was it like for you suddenly going to the live environment? Did it just sell it and, you know, you were like, yep, this is what I'm into now. Now I see all this chaos. I want to be part of it. The So the first hardcore show I went to – sorry, let me rephrase that. First show I went to without my parents at all was um, for a local band from here. They were called Through a Glass. Mm-hmm. They were not heavy. It's a weird, I don't even know what genre you would call it, post-hardcore alternative rock. I don't know. It, it was not like a, a mosh band at all. Um, the The singer for it actually was like the worship leader for the church that I was going to when I was growing up and like things like that. But, you know, there was like a mosh pit there and it was pretty packed and it was just a cool environment for me to be a part of. So I was like, Oh, this is cool. That was in 2007, I think. And then I recall it was February 15th of the following year was the first like heavy show that I got to go to. And it was haste the day. Ooh. Scary Kids, Scaring Kids, Drop Dead Gorgeous, Gwen Stacy, and then a band that opened it was actually a local band that ended up touring all the time. Uh, they were called As Hell Retreats. Ooh, yeah. And um, yeah, they actually, the first tour I ever went on, I say tour, the first time I ever traveled for music was they took me out with them for about four days over my spring break to run merch with them because they were from my hometown. Mm. And uh, that was the first time I ever saw them actually was on this big stage at this venue from here called Rocket Town. And so, you know, it's my first show and I see these guys that I've seen around the city, but like I had no idea who they were or what they did. I just heard their name from my friends who were in, who actually had been going to those shows. They'd say Asshole Retreats was this great band and all this stuff. And I was like, okay, cool. And showed up and I see them and, you know, I'm seeing them on a stage standing up five feet higher than me with a packed room and, their singer Jackson stage dive, which was which was totally against the rules of the venue and like (laughs) blew me away. So these guys were basically celebrities in my eyes at the time. And, uh, they go down to what I'm sure will be a question later on the line. They pretty much put the bug of touring into me when I was a freshman in high school. Cause they took me out on the, on that first little run I did. And uh, a few of them are actually still, still doing it you've got a tyler riley plays for gideon now and then Mm. blake hardman's playing for counterparts so they still still trucking and doing great things so that that was the first heavy show i ever went to and that was the one where i was like okay this is wild (laughs) yeah i think i think it's really i don't know i think it's really important that what you also experienced is something that I think everyone that gets into heavy music kind of starts to understand is a sense of community, the sense of uh, belonging that no matter what your issues are, no matter your background, race, color, whatever, um, everyone can come together and everyone kind of supports each other. And I know Nashville as well, um, 
like you mentioned Tyler, I've had Tyler on the show. It really is a very tight knit community if you're into heavy stuff there. Yeah, it's uh I genuinely believe that Nashville is and this is not to say that there's not other incredible heavy music scenes all over the country. And I'm not obviously not as frequent a member of those scenes. I get to drop in for a night at a time and see what it's about. But Nashville, since I've been going to shows, has gone through a lot of weird phases. And as of the last four years, it has just become such an awesome place to see a show. And I mean, I, I tell people all the time, you know, when you, a lot of people, you know, will think of Orthodox and they think of Nashville or now, especially they'll think of chamber and, you know, there are so many incredible bands from the city just because it is music city that like it, you don't even really scratch the surface if you just know about us too, you know? And that's another really cool thing is that we have local bands that are better than some bands that we've toured with. You know, it's just, it's, it's a, it's a hell of a scene to be a part of. And everybody outside of obviously every collective of anybody in, in a, in a counterculture like hardcore, there's going to be a couple of bad apples that try to start shit and whatever. But, you know, the majority of the group is really good at recognizing the bullshit when we see it. And it's, it's a very supportive community and, you know, there's the same faces at every show and no matter how many people are there, it's always a good time. So it's it's a it's a great community for heavy music. Now uh, you mentioned that you know the first show you went to with As Hell Retreats and stuff, and an interesting thing there I noticed was I don't think all I think majority of those bands were at that time very faith based heavy stuff. So you're in Nashville and you're getting a lot of this you know touring stuff, but also America at that time was full of a lot of faith metal hardcore bands was that ever something that you uh gravitated to because were you growing up in a bible belt where were you faith-based oh absolutely i you know i grew up in a southern baptist church my first band was like a, a christian metal band and you know you had as Hell Retreats and A Plea for Purging were the two biggest bands. Still, I think A Plea is probably the biggest metal band to ever come out of Nashville. And, you know, that had a huge influence on the scene. You know, not only that, but the Scream the Prayer Tour started their tour almost every year in Nashville. Um, it was just, it was a, you had you had the Cornerstone Festival right up the road in, I think, Illinois. You, especially just in the Southeast, the uh, the the christian hardcore metalcore whatever you want to call it scene was very big um so for a while obviously that it that was a part of what i was into um and that was a that was a lot of the bands that came out of here at that time were they were either very much like the faith-driven metal stuff or they were the counter opposite because they're like oh these bands are getting popular off this stuff we don't believe so they're like I, there was a Man, I can't remember what. It, oh, there was a band from here named The Castle is a Tomb that had a had a shirt the back said "Keep Jesus out of death metal," <laughs> you know, like just just silly shit like that. But um, but yeah, back at the very start of it all, that was a very you know looking back, it was it was what we claimed it was a because that was what was a part of our lives. But it was um it was a very big thing in the southeast specifically. 
So, you know, switching gears a bit into, um, you know, you mentioned about getting out on the road for your first taste and you mentioned also earlier about wanting to give it a go as kind of a career, but were you in high school when you started thinking to yourself, all right, I don't want to do a nine to five, I want to do the music or what was the process like for you during high school? Because a lot of people listening will know that when they're in high school, they're told pick a career, pick a path. This is what you're going to do. Um, were you doing that or were you saying, no, I'm going to do music? I, I, you know, once I realized, because, you know, growing up, I also had like the dreams of being like a a professional baseball player and, you know, all the, all the average dreams that you have as a kid, the ones that, you know, nine out of 10 people growing up probably had those same dreams. But, you know, I, I was playing baseball through high school and then stopped my sophomore year because I realized how not inclusive it really was and how. I didn't fit the mold of the people I'd be surrounding myself with. Mm. And I don't know. I don't think there was ever like a real decision that I was just going to be a full-time touring musician. I think it was just something that I knew I wanted to do. And I knew that my opportunity to do it was not going to be, you know, after I'd gone to college or something like that, because that to me, it's kind of like, there's nothing wrong with going to college. I, there are times where I wish I had just because of the people I would have met and the, just to see the differences and, and where I would be, but it's, it's not for everyone. And it is for some people. So it's one of those things where I knew that if I wanted to do one or the other, I had to fully commit because I didn't want to get halfway through it. And then suddenly decide I wanted to tour or I didn't want to start touring and then realize I wanted to go to college. So it was kind of like I was in a band at the time called empathy that was starting to get a little steam and i really enjoyed playing those shows and i really enjoyed just being with those people and i that was something i wanted to do was just travel and play music and so i think around the end of my senior years when orthodox actually started so that was the end of 2011 and then i think our first show was in march i think it was march 31st of 2012 yeah that was just kind of like once I was able, once that was the first time I'd ever sang for a band. I'd been playing drums for anything that I'd done up until that point, and so that was kind of where I was like, "All right, if this group of guys is down to get moving, then I want to get moving." And so we did. So, how did you go playing drums? I mean, why drums? Um, of all the instruments you could have started on, why the drum kit? Why not the guitar? Um, were you just naturally talented at it? I mean, how how did you discover? drums was your thing because that's a fuck that's a loud fucking instrument if you're going to pick that you have to be de- <laughs> you have to be dedicated and parents oh they might be your dad was probably like can't you just play fucking guitar well you know it's funny you said that my, my dad actually he always wanted to play drums when he was growing up but his <laughs> parents wouldn't let him because of how loud it was so he always swore to himself that no matter what instrument his kid wanted to play he would support them playing it and um, I, I started off, you know, I was, like I said, very big into country music, very big into bluegrass and things like that. And I, I actually started off playing the mandolin for a little while. Mm. Um, but I never got any really that good at it. And then I think I actually broke my hand skateboarding. 
And that was where I was like, okay, I can't really play this that well anymore because I couldn't bend my fingers the way I wanted to for a little while just because I didn't, I don't think I even went to the doctor. I think I was just like, I'll be fine. And so, you know, with all that, I was like, uh, yeah, I'm kind of tired of playing this anyways. I'm not really listening to the music that this instrument is played with anyways. And, but I, that was, I think around the time that I started really getting into heavier music. And then that was really around the time that I started really enjoying like Slipknot specifically. And they of course have a drummer and two percussionists. So I would always watch, you know, live videos of them. And I don't even know where I got a practice pad and sticks, but somehow they ended up in my house and I would play along pretending to be, you know, either clown or Chris and play along to the parts that they were playing. And, um, that was kind of where my dad was like, Hey, I think you really like the drums. And, you know, for my 13th birthday, they got me an electric drum set and I played on that until sorry not for my birthday but for christmas they got me that and then the following christmas they got me a real drum set and then i think i started taking lessons around like somewhere between that and it just really took i just really enjoyed it i could play it for hours and hours and it was something that i i was pushing myself to get better at without even needing the extra push of you know a teacher necessarily so it, it was kind of like where i found you know, the mandolin and all that to be cool to be able to do, you know, playing drums was where I was like, oh, this is, this is great. I love this. This is exactly what I want to do. And it just stuck. So then, you know, why, when Orthodox start, why become a vocalist? Um, Were you sick of lugging around a drum kit? Were you, you know, did you want to be up front? Because it is a bit of a transition. You're up the back. Um, you know, you are noticed, but you're not the focal point. Um, and suddenly taking on a microphone means you're up front. Um, and it means a whole different kettle of fish. Yeah. Um, so even though I was just a drummer for a long time, I still was always like writing songs, writing lyrics, all that kind of stuff. And one thing that I like remember really enjoying, uh, from the first shows that I went to once I became familiar with bands was the fact that. I could jump up on somebody's back and yell the words of the song to the singer. And it kind of, I, I wanted to give myself the chance to write songs that other people would sing along to like that to me just felt like the coolest thing. And still it does is, is the coolest, uh, one of the coolest parts of the, these kind of shows is just the full on interaction to the point where someone who's not the performer can take a microphone and, I had a lot of stuff that I was angry about at the time. I had a lot of things that I wanted to say. And the opportunity came to me because I had been doing guest vocals for all sorts of different of my friends' bands, just grabbing the mic for a part and then hopping off the stage. And somebody, uh, Michael Bagley, who was the original drummer for Orthodox, asked me if I wanted to audition for the role that they were trying to fill because he and uh, a guy that was playing guitar at the time had the had their parts done but they wanted somebody to sing for it and they didn't know who to get and so i wrote lyrics to this little instrumental they sent me and then when i went for the audition i ended up like freaking out and smashing my head with the mic and punching the floor a bunch and i was like <laughs> yeah you know i'm trying to sell it as best i can to you guys right here and that was where it started and uh 
yeah, I, I, that was really mainly it was I just kind of wanted to be up at the front because I, I admired so many vocalists for the way that they did things. And so that was that was the main inspiration was just giving something else a try and being able to actually be the one to sing my own words was a really big part of that, too. How did you go about, um, you know, finding your screaming voice? Like, did it was a lot of it just for the time being just screaming until you couldn't scream anymore? Or were you looking into technique and, you know, ways of doing it? Oh, I did it the completely wrong way. (laughs) (laughs) I I just yelled and eventually uh, I found a way that I sounded good at that time. And then we went on tour and I realized I couldn't yell like that. So I had to adjust in the middle of the store uh, to make myself sound like anything at all. And then when we tried to record, you know, the first record was that we ever did. It was like a it was 10 songs, but it was an EP still. It was like 18 minutes, something like that. And um, I was all really high pitched, really like loud and angry. And sound. I, I wanted to kind of sound like trash talk. That was one of my favorite vocalists was Lee from trash talk. And so that was how that sounded. And the second EP we put out, I went into track it and I was like, I can't yell like this anymore. <laughs> like I just genuinely can't. <laughs> and we were struggling with me getting through these songs and randomly there was a part coming up and it was a song I hadn't actually performed yet. So I was just, it was the first time I was ever yelling these words and it, I got myself so into it that I like forced myself to yell correctly for the first time. Like I forced my, my coming from, you know, the stomach and all that where I'd never even known how to do that before. And it just came out out of anger. And I was like, Oh, this sounds insane. Uh, let's retrack everything. <laughs> and <laughs> so we went back and tracked everything else that I had done that night. That was, it was literally the last lines. Like that, those were the last things I had to record. And we did that. And everyone in the control room was like, can you, can you do that again? How did you do that? And I was like, I think so. <laughs> so we just went back and did it again. And it, you know, it sounded great for the time. And then that came out in like 2014, I believe. It's called Give Me a Reason. Mm-hmm. And then we did a little split with Breaking Wheel in 2015. And, you know, same thing. Just went in and pushed as hard as I could from the stomach. And then we toured a lot between then and releasing the actual next record, which was Sounds of Loss. And for that one, Tyler and I, uh, Tyler Williams, who he also plays for Counterparts now, um, it was just him and I for the for the band at the time. We were the only two members, and so we were the only two that were writing things. And if you listen to older things as an, and then listen to Sounds of Loss, it, you can just hear a very big difference just in the dynamic of how I started yelling. And so finding how to do all that was just trial and error, and it, and also just getting over the fact that it sounded so much weirder than anything I'd done before because it sounded like what I wanted it to. I just never been able to do it. So finding the way that I yell now has been a very long process, but I'm, I think I'm finally starting to get close to the hang of it. I don't even know that I'm all the way there yet, but I I definitely, definitely not something rooted in technique. Well, I definitely think, like you said, if you listen to um, End of My Wit, which was like the first one, and then you listen to like 
you know, sounds of of loss, there really is. You you can hear the maturity. You can hear the techniques changed. Um, I guess also part of it is you can hear maybe you're a bit more comfortable now. You know, that's quite a few years under your belt at that stage. Um, I noticed going back um, into my iTunes because I still use iTunes and looking at all the music you guys have done that I forgot that, you know, at the time of End of My Wit, I think you guys were labelling yourself or you were labelled a straight edge band. Have I got that right? Yeah, we still are. Okay. But what I mean, what I mean, and I don't mean it in a bad way, what I mean was that um, nowadays if you said to someone orthodox, they're probably not aware of it, but at the time it was all over your merch, um, all over the band camp, things like that. Um, was that, you it's know... Still pretty, it's still a pretty present thing. Oh. I, I think that we're almost more of a, or probably just as much known as a straight edge band now than we were then. So why um, it's, it's not it's not something that we necessarily push on on like the internet as much because it has become a known thing. But merchandise wise, we still have a lot of stuff that says it. Um, and especially you know this, we had one shirt we just did with the uh, the hard to kill tour that the back just had live shots of the four of us and it just in huge letters said "We're well, straight edge" on the back. It was honestly the most probably ignorantly straight edge shirt we've ever had. <laughs> so I mean, you know. First question, um, how did you become straight edge? What was the decision? Because I love it. I, I think it's amazing. We, uh, or sweetie, sorry. I was always sober as a kid. I never dabbled into, you know, weed or get going and sneaking a drink or anything like that. I, uh, I was raised in a house where, uh, you know, everyone in my household struggled with addiction of some sort. And... I kind of took the advice literally of do as I say, not as I do, because, you know, I had every member of my family made some dumb decisions, but they're all still incredibly smart, beautiful people. And so I, I really look, still do look up to everyone that I grew up with in my house, but um, they all did some pretty stupid things. Uh, and luckily, you know, the main one was my mom and my dad. My dad's been, I think been going to AA for, I think he said 20 years the other day, which is Ooh. insane to me. Um, and then my mom, as I was growing up, she had a constant struggle with addiction, whether it be pills, you know, alcohol, anything like that nature, she was going through it and it was a lot to witness growing up. But I would say that as traumatic as it was, it definitely pushed me in the direction that is best for me because it made me realize like, okay, addiction is a disease. It is a genetic trait. Like you, you have a very, you can have a very addictive personality and that's exactly how I am. You know, if I find a band or a record I like a lot, I will wear it the fuck out. I mean, same thing with, you know, TV shows like the show scrubs. I've seen every episode chronologically, probably eight or nine times. Fuck. It, just things like that. Yeah. You know, and so I, I kind of picked up that I was had a bit of an obsessive and addictive personality as I was growing up. And I think that alone kind of scared me away from it. Like, you know, you don't want to go down that path because you're seeing what it can do. And so I just never allowed myself to do to try any of those things. 
And then coming about to claiming Edge was actually, I was 15. I actually wasn't really a part of the actual hardcore scene in Nashville. I was still, you know, in the like metal shows was in, you know, still kind of wore some like scene metal stuff. And a, uh, the singer for the band that I was in at the time was like, you are basically straight edge. Like you should just, you should be straight edge. And I was like, what is that? And they kind of just told me what it was. And that was kind of where I was like, okay. And so I looked it up and did a little bit of research and it was a bunch of things I didn't really understand. Cause I didn't even know who, you know, minor threat or judge was. I didn't know anything about that actual culture at the time. Um, but it was just something I was proud of because I was, you know, the lone standing sober minded member of my family. So it was just kind of gave me something to cling onto and proclaim. And it made me proud to be as I was, you know, and as I started to actually get into, you know, hardcore music and things like that, I started finding bands that were straight edge and I started understanding more and more of what it was rooted in and why it was a necessary thing of the time. And it just made me feel even better about the decision I made because as I've grown older and older and stayed the way that I am with it, it's kind of just, you realize that straight edge is when they say it's like for myself, not you or anyone else, all that kind of stuff. Like it's genuinely like, yeah, it is a group of people. There's a lot, I have a lot of straight edge friends and, but that, you know, it is still very much a personal thing. And that's kind of what made me proud to claim it. And that's kind of why I wanted to, when Orthodox first started, I wanted it to be a straight edge band and I wanted, and it's been a pretty prominent thing that we have to keep it that way. Oh, I love it, man. Like massive props. I'm just after, just over four years, uh, sober myself. All right, man. That's awesome. Um, so thank you. It's something that I think, um, I think America's culture's got a big problem, but I think not enough not enough people understand how bad Australians' culture is. Um, their big thing is you finish work, um, and at work you knock off and you have a beer. It's fucking horrible. Like the culture here is just warped. It's unbelievable. Um, so bands like yourselves, um, Year of the Knife, all of these ones that are championing and pushing forward the message, I think is essential um, in a very warped. Um, broken society that we're looking at nowadays yeah and it's also one of those things that i always try to push like just as much as straight edge is something for me doesn't mean that anyone should feel any different about anyone else if they don't align with those Mm -hmm. collective beliefs exactly you know and that's that's one thing i think that some people are turned off to listening to us because we are a straight edge band because they think that it's going to be another like, Oh fuck you. I'm sober kind of thing. But like, it's quite the opposite. You know, the majority of the things that I've written for the band are rooted in experiences that led me to my decision to claim, as opposed to just shouting that we're a straight edge band. And it's, it's, uh, I know that's, that's one of the things that I always even try to say when we play live is like, you have the right to be whoever the hell you want to be. And it's nobody's right to make that, to make up your mind for you, you know, but you know, we have some songs that are for the straight edge kids and that's just how it is. But that doesn't mean that we don't love and appreciate anybody of any sort of belief that's there to see our show. Yeah. And I think that's the thing about, um, I think some people get mis 
misconception about straight edge is straight edge people won't bash you and tell you off. There are occasionally the bad egg in the bunch, but the majority of us, it's like, do what you want to do. Um, and by being, you know, yourself and supportive of whatever decisions other people make, you eventually will t- turn the tide of people thinking, oh God, straight edge, mm, they're going to harp on and give me a bad time. Eventually people understand that straight edge people just, it's just their way of life and it's a bit different. It's not like someone who's religious and they will tell you off for not being religious. I think it's very different. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's even funny because we've done, now we've done like two, you know, pretty death ish tours that we we just went out with uh Slaughter to Prevail, Body Snatcher in Prison, and then last year we went out with Spite. And at those shows, all the time, those the fan base will come and be like, hey man, can I smoke you out? And I'm like, you know, no. I really appreciate that because I know what you're trying to offer. Like that is your way of expressing like friendship and like solidarity and all that, but like it's just not my thing. But it's just, it, that's kind of realizing that it just because there's a substance involved doesn't mean it's an evil thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, now I want to get back into some of the music and the releases and we mentioned them earlier. The first two was end of my wit and give me a reason. What was that time like for you guys as a band? Were you finding that you were getting more shows or was it really a grinding process for you guys to get out and play shows and build a fan base? What was it like in the early few years for you guys? It wasn't hard necessarily to get the shows. It was just hard to get people to come to them. That was that was the <laughs> the real challenge. We we uh you know, we actually the first tour we ever did, we got to play a bunch of awesome shows. We played day two of the tour was actually in Atlanta for Edge Day. Foundation was the headliner. Um, it, that was like a crazy experience. And then the end of that tour we played uh, what ended up being the last gateway to the West Fest and then played an after show in this abandoned cathedral with rival mob and got to do some cool stuff with that. And then our second tour was actually the back half of the wrong way tour, which was rotting out, no bragging rights, the beautiful ones and heart to heart. And we just got on that from, you know, friends knowing people that could get our name out to the people who were booking it to get us on the shows. And, we literally did the first five days of that route without getting paid because we just wanted to play those shows so badly. And, you know, looking back at it now, I'm kind of like, wow, you idiot. Why did you do that? But <laughs> at the same time, like it was, it was just, that was probably the hardest tour we ever did in terms of, you know, we were paying out of pocket on West coast drives for gas and, you know, our merch girl got in a car wreck and had to go to the ER and then the next day, our bassist staged over and basically broke his tailbone, and we had to go to the ER. And then at the very end of the tour, which was in Oregon, uh, our merch, our we brought a couple people with us, and our other friend was with us had a incredibly bad pink eye. Yeah. He had to go to the ER. And then on top of all that, we had uh, a tire rod went bad that we had to replace, which was all the money we had made. Um, and then also the last show of the tour was in Klamath Falls, Oregon. And with the timeline that we had, we couldn't play any shows on the way back to Nashville. So we had to drive from Klamath Falls, Oregon to Nashville, Tennessee, which took us, I think, 
46 hours, maybe a little longer. Fuck. So it was, yeah, it was a gnarly experience of a tour, but I would say that every lesson that we needed to learn that you usually learn over the course of a couple of years of like doing smaller, you know, smaller runs in terms of length and ground covered, we got to learn every hard lesson within two weeks <laughs> so it, it beat the shit out of us but we we learned a lot from it and then i think the next tour we did was that that following november was with a band called heretic from dallas which was a lot of fun but it, we did you know tours with them we did tours with left behind incited lowered ad no zodiac um we actually ended up doing uh knock loose's first west coast headliner with another mistake and that was a blast. That's still one of my favorite tours we've ever done. Um, but, you know, for those, that was all touring off of the Give Me a Reason songs as well as some of the End of My Wit stuff. And we had a couple of shows here and there where someone would know the songs real well, or we'd have a couple of shows where we would sell some good amount of merch. But for the most part, it was a very grinding process because we wouldn't really go out for anything less than two weeks long. And, so it, it definitely took a toll on us and kicked our ass for a little while because we did um, we did two and a half weeks with Knocked Loose, and a week before that we were out with Breaking, Breaking Wheels. So we did three and a half weeks for that, and then two months later we did a full U.S. with No Zodiac, and then two months after, or a month and a half after we got home from that, we did another full U.S. with Left Behind, and then. I don't even remember what we did after that, to be honest, but it, we just, we wore ourselves out trying to get out there because the little spark we had, we wanted to fan it to a flame. And it, uh, it, it definitely helped because it established a fan base, not even necessarily on like the music getting out there or blowing up or anything, but just on familiarity, like hitting the same cities enough times to where you make friends that spread the word and you meet bands that spread the word. And I think that has kind of helped us grow the fan base almost as much as the music has is just us being willing to hit the same city on the other side of the country three times in the same year, just because we want to make sure we're on the road. And that, that was a, a, a long process, but it honestly makes doing the tours that we're doing now where, you know, the smallest shows are 80 people, you know, things like that. It makes it all the more sweet because you're like, wow, you know, we're actually, starting to get a little traction this is starting to get a little easier so it's it's uh the first years to answer the question just finally was you know a lot of grinding but a lot of good times and we made a lot of friends and it's helped us grow exponentially into the band that we are well it's also part of you know you guys clearly um a happy well you were at the start not necessarily happy it's the wrong phrase but but you're willing to be road warriors and not only road warriors, but, you know, you're adjusting to living in a van or a, or a bus or whatever it is with the same blokes at the same time. Um, was being on the road a lot easy for you to do or did it take quite a bit of an adjustment because you're missing out on a lot of life back home to be on the road? Um, I mean, that's still something that is hard to adjust to these days, mainly just because, you know, like you do miss so much when you're out for so long. Like we were just out for 45 days and, you know, it, you miss, I, I, 
particularly try to stay very close with my family back home. Pretty hard to do on top of, you know, maintaining a relationship and things like that is just, it is, it is very trying. Um, but it makes you all the more appreciative of the, of the relationships you have. And then it also, it kind of, it, that itself was kind of like its own motivator of like, Hey, if, you know, in the middle of the set, a couple of times I was, you know, it wasn't our crowd or the show it just wasn't that responsive or we weren't doing that well or something. Or if I was just tired, there'd be a break in the set and I'd sit down and I'd be like, you know what, like you're missing all these comforts of home, all these things that you could be doing for like having the solid paycheck every week and all that to do this. So like get the fuck up and do this the right way. And it kind of would motivate me to just really push that extra energy that I need, even if it wasn't to people who cared about it, you know? So it, it's, it's a, uh, I like to try to think of the distance and the, the things that you miss as more of a motivator as opposed to a negative. Hmm. Yeah. I think that's sick. Um, now, we've spoken of the name of the release, but it's the release where I think a lot of people listening will know of you guys from, and that's Sounds of Loss. So the first question with that I've got is, how did the link up with Unbeaten Records come about? Did you chase them or did they chase you? So Unbeaten, um, I actually, the tour I was just mentioning, where we did a full U.S. with Left Behind, we played in Albany, New York, and the uh, or sorry, actually, the No Zodiac tour played in Albany, New York, and the uh, head of Unbeaten, uh, Buddy Armstrong, was there. He saw it. We didn't meet, but he messaged us while we were out with Left Behind, and Left Behind had just announced that they were with Unbeaten. And so I was talking to Zach Hatfield about like, you know, how legit is this is what he's because, you know, we're coming from paying out of pocket for these EPs and being broke on the road to having a guy throw a couple thousand dollars of interest of like, hey, we want to do an LP with you guys and distribute it with like vinyl and CD and, you know, you'll be unbeaten as a part of Equal Vision Records. So like the distribution will all be through Equal Vision and all this stuff. And I was like, okay bullshit <laughs> but i i didn't i genuinely didn't believe it because i was like all right yeah fucking whatever cool yeah wrong number but <laughs> he uh you know i talked to zach and he was like no it's actually it's he's really great to work with and that's kind of how that linked up was we just talked to him for a little bit figured out what exactly is the mutual interest between the label and the band were and we signed a contract and that's uh that was the start of that relationship so and I mean that that release with the link up of being on kind of a recognized um, independent label, um, that release got quite a bit of buzz. Um, a lot of people started, you know, you'd see it around a bunch of social media things. You'd see it in reviews. Um, it felt like that release really uh, was creating a name for yourself. Uh, what do you think about that release? made it so accepted and welcomed by, you know, not only industry people, but just general, you know, mosh kids. I, I, well, at that point, I feel like Orthodox was definitely a name where not everyone had heard our music. Not everyone like knew really anything about the band, but like, like I said, we'd all been touring and, and moving so much that the name, if you went to hardcore shows, you'd at least heard the name Orthodox somewhere. And that's not this 
say that there's any significance of the name to them, but I think that itself kind of helped when we actually pushed the record out and it was so different from everything else that we've done. Um, I feel like that's kind of what helped it buzz at first was just the fact that we had so many friends and so many bands that were pushing it and people had heard the name Orthodox but didn't know what the deal was. And that kind of pushes out on top of, I think what really just helped that give us buzz is just that in comparison to the first things that we'd written and released, it was just so much better. Mm. You know, um, it, it had songs that had verse chorus verse formats that had hooks that had repeating lyrics that helped carry a theme it was overall just it was also the first time that we'd been given more than you know 20 minutes to express our artistic vision and it was also the first time that tyler and i weren't writing to fit a mold we just wrote whatever the fuck we wanted and you know we for the longest time we're trying to still be like this hardcore band that had influences in you know like the first record if i was going to say that our first thing what our first album sounded like i tell people it's kind of like if you sped up a foundation record Mm. that's what i would imagine people would say our our first album was like and then give me a reason was almost metalcore it was still very much a hardcore record but had like weird little influences in new metal here and there that I don't even know if you can trace it to that if you didn't have me point out where it came from. But then Sounds of Loss, we were like, you know, the first song that we actually wrote for it was The Approach, which was Ooh, the yeah. very last song of the record. Um, the Approach and The Taking. It was actually, that was originally one song that we split in two songs. Ooh. And when we wrote that, we were just kind of like, man, this is not what we've been writing, but we like this so much more. And what we've been doing and so we got a couple of songs in and i actually remember messaging buddy and being like hey um i just want to be completely transparent that the songs that we're writing are nothing like the band that you signed <laughs> <laughs> and we didn't we didn't know if we were gonna like go in and record it and send it to him and him be like this is fucking awful what is, I, I want my money back or something we were just very unaware of how it would be received and he was like, no, I trust you guys, you know, do what you need to do. I'm excited to hear it. And, you know, we went down to Florida to Daniel Colombo, um, who ended up writing a lot of this new record and mixing, mastering and all that kind of stuff with him for both. Um, and, you know, we left there, we were driving overnight to get back to Nashville and I sent it to buddy. And the following morning when I pulled up to my house, he was texting me saying, man, this is unbelievable. And, um, I think it was that was kind of the first sign of like, okay, we've got something good to work on here. And we, I think that's kind of just what helped it catch on was just that it was the first time that we let ourselves write whatever we wanted to write. And we let, we genuinely expressed ourselves through the music as opposed to trying to write what we thought somebody else would like. We were, we were genuinely at the point where we had been grinding so much that we were like, if this flops, we're just going to break up. And that's mm. fine but we're going to put this out there and own it. And it didn't flop. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think it was a perfect, you know, you mentioned a lot of things there. It's a perfect mixture of any, everything. The, the songs are better. uh, The production's better. The time you took for it was better. The, you know, the foundation of the band with touring and everything was already at a really great point. The record label you're on was a really good point. 
it was the perfect thing for the band at that stage. And then you just see that from there, you're just slowly playing bigger and bigger shows, you know, bigger tours. Um, you're also at this stage starting to do, which you mentioned um, about recent tours, you start becoming a band that can go on any bill. Um, that's also something unique. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, we've seen both the, uh, the incredible bright side of that and the incredible dark side of that as of <laughs> the two times we've gone out. So, What's the bright side and what's the dark it, side to that? Well, you know, we did the Spite tour last year. It was uh, the Killer Be Killed tour. It was Spite left behind us and a band called Depths of Hatred. Um, and, you know, that tour, or at least just the buzz we got from it, for I personally believe gave Sounds of Loss its second, like a resurgence of it because, mm. you know, we came out the gate with it. You know, the Spotify numbers jumped from like 1,700 monthly listeners to like 13,000. You know, we were getting a lot of people talking about us. And then, of course, as every record does, you know, there are so many good bands on the exact same level as us and a little bit bigger that are putting stuff out so frequently that records tend to get lost if it comes out at a certain point or just because there's so much new stuff. I mean, God, there's, I can list 15 albums that have come out in the last four months that I'm friends with all the band or all the members of each band. They're just so much coming out. And so it kind of got lost a little bit, especially because we didn't tour as heavily as we wanted to right out the gate with it. We did, you know, um, we did our record release tour, which started a week after it came out. It was us, um, Breaking Wheel and Hanging Moon, which was, which eventually became Chamber. And then to t- end that year, five months later, we did the Blessed by the Burn tour with Left Behind and Mercy Blow. And then we didn't do anything else until the headliner that we did the following summer, um, which ended up being significantly better than we thought it was going to be. But that was, you know, the front half chamber was on the whole thing. It was a full U.S. And the front half had peace of mind on it, as well as joy and purgatory on a few dates. And then the back half had I am. And then again, we got kind of quiet again. And actually in that time, that was chamber's first tour. And before we even got home from that, uh, I guess to give you more to that story, the um, members of chamber, were also in Orthodox and then Chamber started getting opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. And we were like, look, we get it. You guys need to focus on this and that's okay. So we got hit with the spite tour uh, offer and me and Mike white, our drummer, we were like, you know, if we do this, we're going to have to find a fill in for two guitars and bass. And, but we were like, well, we should do this tour. We need to do this tour. And, it turned out that we just found the perfect guys for the job. You know, we got Austin Evans uh, playing lead guitar with it. We got Shiloh Krebs, who they're they're two both official members, and then we found Ben Touchberry, who plays for Frost Coffin, and he still fills in for us from time to time. And that ended up being, I think, the best we've ever sounded uh, was for that tour. And just the buzz that we got from that record pushed through album again and again, and we ended up selling out of the remainder that we had of the physical copies. Our merch was just flying off the shelf for it. And it gave us a buzz that even though we didn't tour again for another six months after that, when we did another tour 
with I am this past summer, like every show for us just had a crowd and it, I, I think that tour specifically was the, the exact perfect crossover crowd for us because spite itself is like a deathcore band that's still really fast but still has groovy breakdown elements and things like that and so that was like our first taste of like the deathcore world and we were like that's awesome these people just love heavy music they want to buy the merch of whatever band they see they want to interact with the bands and all that stuff and it was great we were like this is this is sick and then we got uh the offer just recently for that slaughter to prevail tour that we did and we were like okay this is great we'll take it because originally it was supposed to be a spite and slaughter to prevail head or co-headliner and that fell through because spite took the offer for the chelsea grin tour that they're on currently um but we still took the slaughter to prevail uh solo headliner offer because we're like you know we did a tour in this world before it did awesome we'll go out on a real high note to end the year. And then it turns out that there was a big difference in the crowds that were coming to the spite show and the slaughter prevail show. So there was still a lot of people at each show, but they were there for the extreme Russian deathcore band that was slaughter prevail. And we were not that at all. <laughs> so we, uh, it was kind of like the first couple songs we were just convincing them like, Hey, I promise you like us, just give us a chance. I promise. Like, just keep watching, please God. <laughs> and, you know, the responses were pretty weak in terms of, you know, like interaction from the crowd and so on. And there was a couple shows were real crazy, but for the most part, it was, a lot of people like putting up fists and like enjoying it, but nobody was that into it. You know, we were, we were placed right between prison and body snatcher and prison's probably the hardest band we've ever had to follow. And then body snatcher is just a force. So it was just, it was a very hard place placement for us. And we'd never been the sore thumb, so to speak on a tour. And, you know, the merch wasn't moving and it, it's not to say that we didn't have a good time because we love the body snatcher guys. We love the prison guys. We love the slaughter prevail guys. It was a fun tour. It was just not anything like the first experience we had in that demographic. So it was very humbling to say the least. Fuck, that would have been hard. Like that Russian death call. The, I think, I think it's also just, you know, I'm not speaking ill on anyone that's into the Russian death call, but I think it, it really leans a certain kind of listener who's, really straight lined with what they like and they like this and they don't like anything else. And then you throw you guys in there, not at the, not opening, but you're kind of in the mix. Fuck. You're pushing uphill the whole time. It'd feel. Yeah. And you know, it was cool because a lot of the shows I would say, you know, who in here has never heard of us. And that's totally, I would be like, it's totally okay. I'm not going to be upset. Who here has never heard of us. And, um, a lot of the room would raise their hand. We even, we played a Nashville show. It was the only Nashville show that we had this entire year. And before we started, I even said like, Hey, so fun question. Who here's never heard of us? And about half the room raised their hand. And I was like, cool. So little facts for you guys. We're from here. We've been playing shows here since 2012. You guys are really late to class, but it's okay. It's not a big deal. We're happy you're here. And so like, that was day three of that tour. So we were like, damn, even the Nashville show, nobody had a clue. <laughs> and uh, it was it was a hell of an experience. And I mean, God, you talk about 
insane musicians watching slaughter prevail every night do the things that they do it i don't they have multiple songs are like over 300 bpm and mm. just you know it, it's not the kind of genre that i listen to on my day-to-day but jesus i appreciate what they do a lot um and so like i don't i don't even i'm, I don't, I'm not even upset with like their fan base for not liking the kind of music that we are because you know it's just very different Mm. But it was very much just like a, a a trying month of just like, all right, let's go out and let's see if we swing or miss, especially because we've been or hit or miss. We especially because we for the last three tours, every show was a hit, at least at some point in the set, there was a hit. So it was just like a a weird uncertainty night tonight because you go out and play to a totally packed room and have no movement. You're like, damn, this is different. But, <laughs> but it was, like I said, it was, it was good because, you know, even if there was no movement, it's still a packed room. Uh, even if they didn't buy the merch, they still saw the band. There's the name still lodged in there and the chances of them hearing of it otherwise is non-existent. So the amount of bands that I wouldn't have liked or heard that I saw at a show randomly, you know, that I are countless. So it, it it's definitely still a even though we you know we came home in debt we had geez we had van issues where we had to replace the transmission like just a, a lot of bad luck it was still something to take a lot of positives from so i'm glad we did it it was still good to get out and play all those shows to end the year but it was definitely like i said you have the high bright side of it and then you have the dark side of it because it we you think it's going to be such a similar thing, but that just goes to show how little we actually knew about the crowd we were playing to. So, well, I think I think you've you've done exactly you know the one way to think of it is like you said you know whether those people like the music or not they will now go home and if someone mentions Orthodox they now know who Orthodox are um, when they see that exactly. you guys release a song whether they'll check it out or not they'll know who you are. And that is kind of, it's invaluable. Um, when you were on that tour, was that when you guys dropped I Can Show You God, which is the first single um, from the new album? Were you on that tour when you dropped that song? We actually, so we did about, I think, seven or eight shows with Kublacon um, leading up to the Slaughter to Burial tour. And the, oh, when did that come out? I Can Show You God came out September 12th, mm-hmm. and we had our first show of the tour was in Memphis on our way to meet up with Kublacon. So that came out day one of the entire long stretch, which was September 12th to October 27th, I think. Now, how did how that song um, is, oof, like, yes, like, just, just, just oof is just the word. <laughs> Um, I can really describe it because I think throwing words at it isn't doing it justice. It's just, it's just yes. Um, what was that like for you guys getting it out? Did you um, notice that everyone that was with you really took to it? Um, because it shows, you know, I'm not saying it's different, but it shows maturity again. You know, you can see the band is constantly um, taking steps forward, whether they're big steps or just tiny steps. It's growing. The band is growing. Um, so how was the reception to the first single? Because at this stage, you hadn't announced it was an album. You just re- announced a single. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I, the reaction we got, again, it was definitely not our crowds. So, like, the Kublacon shows, it was pretty cool how many people actually did know, you know, the key parts. You know, like the show me your blood thing in the middle or the come join the gods at the very end. Like, people knew that part. Um, there was, you know, three or four people each show that knew it. And then even some of the, you know, Slaughter's Prevail dates, there was still some people that knew it and sang along. But as for what the reaction has been, I think the the exposure the song has gotten has not added up to the reaction that we've gotten simply because we haven't played to the crowd that it was exposed to yet. Mm-hmm. So I am very excited uh, for the next tour we have coming up just because uh, it's going to be playing a lot more to our strength. So I'm really looking forward to seeing how that song, as well as the Let It Take Its Course, the title track, and then the single will hopefully release beforehand. Um, all play out uh, to people that are more accustomed to our style of music. Cause I think that those songs are built for reactions. And so it'll be great to see how people who know how to react to that kind of thing actually do so. Now, how was the, you know, um, you mentioned the, the title of the album there, let it take its course. Um, everyone listening, I'll remind you after this chats, February the 7th next year. Um, how was the writing process for you and the guys going into this? Was it again taking more time with it, not trying to write anything that you thought would be, just write what you wanted it to be? So this one was completely different just because, you know, Sounds of Loss was written entirely by me and Tyler Williams. Mm. Um, and it's very painstaking, took, I want to say, almost two years to really wrap it up. And we, in that time, I genuinely feel like Tyler helped instill to me how to write a song better um, because he wasn't a part of, he's no longer in the band. Um, He's doing counterparts full time and they're on tour like 600 days a year. So (laughs) uh, it, it was a very different dynamic because it was the majority of the songs were written by me and Daniel Colombo, who moved up to Nashville at the start or the end of last year, uh, just sitting down in front of his computer and writing riffs together and programming drums to it. And that was kind of how we constructed each song. And so this one was different because it was mainly the thoughts coming out of my head. Um, but, you know, Austin Evans came in and wrote a couple of the songs that we have. He actually, the first song that he wrote for us was I Can Show You God. Uh, and that was a pretty good sign when he showed up with that. I was like, oh, okay, cool. So this is going to go well. But uh, it was it was an interesting dynamic because it, was, it got done a lot faster. We started writing the record, um, I want to say September of last year. And we were recording it by May or April of this year. Um, and so it, we were able to really haul ass and honestly write even better songs, I feel, than the last record. Um, and so the, the, the writing process itself was a lot calmer, a lot less arguing just because it was mainly me and Daniel. And Daniel being a third party was kind of just like a surrogate because I can't play guitar and he is a uh, magician with a guitar i would literally come in with 
you know, be at a part that I wrote on a piano and ask him to transpose the notes on guitar, or I would show him my voice memos from my phone of like, hey, I hummed this while I was driving here the other day. Can you play this? And just piecing things together like that was kind of how that went, which is a pretty common dynamic. But just being able to sit in a room with just him and me and, you know, sometimes having Austin there, we were able to really piece together some good stuff. And it was it just came, I think it was a, a little easier to write this one because we were a little more sure of what we were doing. You know, when, when Sounds of Loss came out, or when we were writing it, I mean, um, we were still writing music like that for the first time. We had been writing, you know, hardcore riffs and things like that for so long that it was definitely our first time really diving into, like, the new metal influence stuff and, like, the really metallic things. And so given that we weren't sure of how the stranger aspects of that record were going to be received, um, we were just kind of, it was almost like, okay, that might be too far kind of thing here and there. But with the new record, it was like, uh, you know, I don't think anybody, if we go in and play it safe, then nobody's going to like it because like, what can you even follow up sounds of loss with if not just diving even further into the dynamics that are weird and uncomfortable so yeah and i think you hear that that was that was a big part of it you definitely hear that on the title track and i think that's what's so exciting um with both of those tracks that are already released is you can see this album's just oh yeah it's going to be i think this is something that everyone needs to make sure they check out with what about for you you know you mentioned in there not every song you've uh, penned the lyrics for but um, can you give a little bit of insight into the concept or the lyrical ideas that are kind of floating around on this release because um, it sounds like it's you know I don't want to say dark because everything can be dark but what's it like lyrically uh, I did write all the lyrics for it it was more so the instrumentals that were all with Austin and Dan Um, I personally feel I feel I would feel weird singing somebody else's songs just as much as I put into it myself um but the lyrics itself is actually kind of like a step off of sounds of lost which is part of the reason why I kind of just trapped myself in a corner to write them by myself because I wanted to try to capture the same feelings while adding new context um and so the actual title, Let It Take Its Course, is actually a lyric from the song Panic off of Sounds of Loss. Um, and it kind of overall a theme of knowing that someone you love has been assaulted or abused or hurt by somebody else and the obsession that you have with wanting to inflict harm back on that person, mm-hmm. but the fear you have of the person you love seeing you different for doing it. And so that kind of constant battle of like, can you live with doing nothing or can you live with the consequence of your action more? Yeah, that that's that's an Easter egg. That whole, you know, kind of wrapped in idea. Um, well, I think I'm going to really look forward to hearing it when I know that in the back of my head is kind of what's going on. Yeah, the uh, to give you like placeholders of it, I guess I can show you God is track five. And it's kind of like a fantasy song of like imagining to capture the person that you've been thinking of and like what you would do to them. 
and kind of just like an imagine imagining it and then later down the record comes the title track let it take its course and that is more so the song that is like the deciding factor of like okay this is gonna happen yeah fuck yeah everyone listening if you weren't already sold on this fucking album now you're fucking sold on it that's it for me that's just (laughs) sign seal and deliver me that fucking album um yes that's what i want to hear um sounds dope dude now I'm kind of already going a bit over time, but I still want to ask one or two questions because um, this this chat is exceeding exceeding all expectations, dude. Um, first one is, what do you feel the record industry is like today? Um, you know, money. I don't want to say it, but it is quite an important thing for bands to stay on the road um, to be able to do what they do because you also need to be able to come home and still pay the bills and eat. So what I mean is the industry is all streaming based. Very few physicals are making money. Merch is still a thing. But as a band who's in the thick of it, do you see the record industry being on your side or do you see that it's kind of trying to find its way and figure things out because you don't make money off streaming and things like that? Um, There's, obviously going to be bugs in every kind of equation like that. But at the end of the day, like you have to remember that is a mutually, it's supposed to be in the grand scheme of it, a mutually beneficial uh, relationship between label and artist. Uh, One thing that's hard to get past is that at the end of the day, no matter how good a label is to you, you are still kind of a pawn in their chess game. You have to remember like, they have to make money. They are the business of it. You all, you are your own business, but they are the hone of it. And you have to adjust to, you know, certain things like, Oh, you have to wait for like one thing that's always been weird to me. It makes total sense. There's something I never had to deal with until we were on a label is that you have to have your physicals and everything that you have, all the physical copies as well as the pre-ordered merch and things like that has to be in the warehouse. I think within like, I don't remember if it's 60 or 90 days before the actual release date. Ooh. So we were sending off, we were sending off our, our, uh, our masters to be pressed on by October 4th so that we could have it out by February 7th, you know, and now things like that are kind of weird to adjust to. But at the same time, it's like, if we were to send it off October 4th and it wasn't through a label, we would probably have to wait until like April or May to put it out because of the priority that you get and the benefit that you get of being on a label that has those connections. So doing things by yourself as a band definitely lends you ideally the opportunity for making more money because you have less to pay out. You have less to pay back, but the ground you can cover by being on a label is much larger um, nine out of 10 times. Mm. So I would personally say being on a label, like if, if unbeaten hadn't came to Orthodox with the deal that they did, we probably would have never written an LP. We would have gone in and tried to write another EP and then that might've been it for the band. Mm. So I would say being on a label has been a very beneficial thing for the band and especially a band of our size, like the amount of money made through streaming through physicals isn't so big 
that you have to really dive into it. Um, and so we've never really been that worried about not receiving our end because we trust the label we're with, but also because, you know, what's a few hundred dollars, you, you know, we're out. The main thing that you make as a band at our level, at least is you make money off of merchandising. And so music industry wise, I've, and, and actually just to talk on merchandising, fuck merch cuts across the board. That is the stupidest shit in the world. If you want to talk about the dumbest music industry thing is a venue or a promoter taking a percentage of merchandise sales because he lent, he got a band a show. That is the stupidest shit I've ever heard of in my life. That but, only, that, hang um, on, sorry to interrupt, but that only happens uh, from my knowledge with a lot of mates that play in Australia, in Australian bands. That's an American thing. What the fuck is going on there? Surprised. And how long <laughs> is that been going on? Uh, it's been a thing for as long as I can remember. We've only ever had to deal with it as of kind of recently. Um, just because it is mainly a bigger venue, bigger show thing. Most hardcore promoters are not going to ask for a merch cut. Um, but you know, every now and then you get in with like an agency that owns venues across the nation and they're like, okay, here's your, what you're going to make. Here's your catering budget. We're going to be taking 15% of your soft sales, which means anything that's not a physical copy of your music, we are going to take a portion of. Yeah. And Fuck. yeah, I, I kind of, in the nicest way, I just hand them a $10 bill every night. I'm not going to fucking get 15% <laughs> when they're paying me a couple hundred dollars to play. But it's that's one of the stupidest things in the industry that I've ever dealt with. But um but to answer more of your your question with, you know, labels in the industry and so on and so forth, you've got the bright side and the dark side of both. You've got labels that will try to do deals where they make a percentage off of everything that a band does. But then you also have labels uh, like what we have with Unbeaten, where after it's all paid back, the percentage that they take from the sales is very small because they want to build the artist. And that, I feel, is more of the deal that you find uh, on the hardcore side of the labels is you you've got a lot of labels that are not huge with distribution they're not some big heavyweight thing but they're there to build you so that you can move move as far as you can and carry their name with it as opposed to some bigger labels where they are there to take what you have and use it to their advantage mm. so it's it's uh it's got brights, that bright side and dark side to both, you know, a little column A, a little column B. It's just uh, a matter of being smart. So the industry can definitely work in your favor. You just have to make sure that you don't take the wrong steps. Wow. Um, yeah. It, oh, I'm still, you know, I've heard about that merch thing. It's fuck, absolutely atrocious. Like, as you said, you know, you're getting paid basically nothing to play the show. Sometimes, as you said earlier, you're paying out of your pocket to keep going on these kind of tours and shows um it's an absolute fucking rort um uh yeah wow i've heard of it but yeah i don't think a lot of our listeners we've heard that before so now everyone gets to fucking hear that fucking atrocious shit um i guess the only thing i could the only thing i could bloody say is um maybe if you're going to a show and you like the band um and you like what they do maybe buy it from i don't know do you do you lose a cut if you sell it online there's a question 
what do you mean lose a cut? So if you are selling merch through, let's say, Merch Now or one of those places, do you get the whole revenue made off that sale of a T-shirt or do you have to give that site a cut of that sale? Uh, there are, it, it's different deals for different places. You know, mm-hmm. you since like one that's uh, we have a store with Cold Cuts mm-hmm. and they have a deal where they take a slight percentage of the profit made after all expenses are done, mm-hmm. which it sounds like it's annoying because it's like, oh, why should they take a, a piece of our profit off of our merchandise? But at the same time, like when you look at the cold cut store, you have a variety of so many different bands from so many different genres. And I remember being a teenager going in on like the all in store and just clicking on a band, looking at their merch and then being like, okay, I want to listen to this band and see what they sound like. Like that's how I found harm's way and ringworm and all that stuff. And, um, so you, you get a lot of exposure from people that are, are literally shopping. They're going to just go through stores and look at products. So, you may not get 100% of the profit made, but you're going to get a larger volume of of shoppers because, you know, somebody that's going on there looking for a, a pop punk band t-shirt may scroll past Orthodox's store and be like, oh, that shirt's badass. I'm going to buy that and I'm going to listen to that band, you know? Mm. So it, it's, uh, it's definitely, you're almost paying, it's almost like the small portion that you're paying to the agency is for the exposure that they give you. And then at the end of the day, the only work I have to do for that store is literally approving designs and we're done. Mm-hmm. So it's a, that's a great, it's a pretty good system for that. So if I want to give you guys money directly, I just got to meet you out in the car park then and buy it directly off you. It's the only way you're going to get all the money. <laughs> I mean, I, I definitely am not going to say that, I, I would definitely still advocate that if you like a band, buy something from their merch table. Like yes. it doesn't matter if there's a merch rate or not. You absolutely always, always buy from the band. Um, even if somebody takes 15%, that's still a lot of the money that you make as a band comes from those merchandising sales. Yeah. So, and also a lot of bands are really good at getting out of merch cuts. So <laughs> uh, it's just a, uh, it, it, Definitely don't be discouraged to buy from the band directly because of you think that there might be a promoter looming or something like that. But um, as for merchandise companies, things like that, like it's it's a pretty, again, mutually beneficial system. Yeah. Um, all right, brother, what we're going to do um, to wrap things up after that absolutely fucking epic chat is what I do with everyone, and it's called Pick Your Poison. What I do here All right. is I give you two options. Now, you have to pick your favorite of the two. Now, you can justify your answer in case you think, oh, my God, people are going to hound me on why I picked that over the other. But you also don't have to either. You can just wing it and just say whatever. All right. Okay. Now, would you rather a pizza or a burger? Pizza. Okay, would you rather smooth peanut butter or crunchy peanut butter? Smooth. Would you rather coffee or tea? Coffee. I'm drinking it right now. Would you rather a soft taco or a crunchy hard taco? I'd rather a soft taco where someone has the insight to grill the tortilla. Ooh. Um, Would you prefer to cook at home or dine out? 
That one's hard. I'm going to say dine out just because, like, I love cooking at home, but I'm not a professional chef by any means. And my girlfriend and I love watching MasterChef and watching cooking shows and things like that. So going out and being able to eat from someone that is actually a professional in that craft that can make flavors and cook things ways that I can't is uh, I, I genuinely enjoy the experience of the food a lot more most of the time. Uh, would you rather see a movie at the cinema or on your couch at home? At the cinema. Do you prefer the beach or the snow? Oh, God. I hate sand and I hate cold, so I don't even – do I have to answer that one? Like, <laughs> <laughs> That's a draw. That one's a draw. Yeah, we'll call a draw on that. That sounds awful. Uh, are you a cat or a dog person? Dog. Yes. Cats are fine, but dogs are far superior. Uh, would you rather Terminator or Predator? You know, I've not really been a huge fan of either film series, but mm. simply because they went up against Alien, I'll say Predator. Rambo or Rocky? Rambo. Freddy or Jason? Uh, Michael Myers. Ooh. Uh, South Park or Simpsons? South Park. Anchorman or Step Brothers? Man. All right, I'm going to throw another wild card here and say, uh, well, actually, no. I was going to say Walk Hard, uh, the Dewey Cox story, but that's not Ooh. a Will Ferrell movie. So I'll, I'll say say what? That is that is an underrated classic film, that one. Oh, yeah. It's it's great. I love. I, I think I love it just because it literally makes fun of so many different ages of music. But I, between those two, I'd say Step Brothers. Or actually, no. Let's say Talladega Nights. I'm going to throw another one in there. Oh, nice. Um, okay, we're getting into a couple of music ones. Uh, Slayer or Pantera? Pantera. Terra or Mad Bull? Terra. Corn or Limp Biscuit? Corn. All the way. Converge or Dillinger Escape Plan? Ooh. Uh, probably Converge on that one. Uh, Metallica or Megadeth? Uh, Metallica. Now, last few. If you're playing a show, do you prefer stage dives going on around you or do you prefer mic grabs going on? Probably the f most fun thing that I've ever had happen at, the sh at a show was when we played a, a homecoming show last year. Um, at the end of that Spite tour, we played with Varials and I Am and then a band called 30 Nights of Violence from here and Catabasis. And the show was absolutely packed. And it was one of the craziest sets. It was probably the craziest set that Orthodox has ever played to date. And during the uh, the anticipation, which is like the sing-along song for our set every night, um, 
people were jumping off the balcony and stage diving on the people that were trying to grab the mic while also jumping on the stage. Wow. So that's probably the perfect medium of both answers there. <laughs> um, when you go to a show, do you watch it from the mosh pit or by the sound desk? Ooh, it all depends on who you're, who I'm seeing. Um, like it's, I don't mosh much anymore, but there are a few bands that just draw it out of me. You know, Inclination and Queensway are two that are, just do it. And I know Queensway is going to be here in a couple of days, and I uh, am definitely going to be sore after a couple of minutes of that. But <laughs> if it's a band that I just want to see, it's usually from like just the middle of the room because that's where it'll sound best. Uh, second last one. Um, would you rather tour for the rest of your life or record an album for the rest of your life. When you say record an album for the rest of my life, do you mean like pull a Guns N' Roses and not release something for 50 years? Or like, do you mean like record and release gradually? Uh, we'll go, oh, I'd love to say the Guns N' Roses, but we'll say record and release gradually. I would rather record and release gradually because if I'm able to do that, that means that they're selling well. So. Mm. Now, last one. Your all-time favorite album is going to be given to you. Would you rather have it on CD, vinyl, or digital? Vinyl. Mm. More of a, uh, it's, it's more of a novelty. It sounds better if you have a proper system. And I don't know, I just, I, it, this may be the American in me, but I just think bigger is better for some things. And if I've got the album art on a CD, I can't look at it as big as I can on a record. And so it's, it's, it's also, you know, CDs are cool, but you, you only have like a certain amount of a certain pressing for vinyl. It's much more of a collectible thing. Whereas CDs is like, here's 10,000 of the same CD, whereas vinyl, and maybe like you have this pressing for 150 and then 500 of this one and 50 of this one, so on and so forth. Great answer. Um, Adam, we have absolutely smashed that dude. I can't thank you enough. <laughs> that, like, dude, like, excellent. Fucking enjoyed every minute of it. I know we absolutely went massively over time, but it was worth every minute. Really means the world, man. I really, really appreciate this. Hell yeah, man. I'm glad we got to do it. Seriously. Thanks again, brother. Much love. Hell yeah, man. Thanks for having me.
So that was my chat with Adam from Orthodox. And at the end there, you heard the band's track, Let It Take Its Course, which is the title track from their upcoming album, which is released February 7th through Unbeaten Records. You also heard the band's track, Panic, and the other track you heard is called I'm Scared of You. Both of those come off the band's previous album titled Sounds of Loss. Now's that bit of the show where I spark that little thing inside you to support the artist that's just been on the show. So if you enjoyed that conversation with Adam, if you enjoyed the tracks at the end there, now's your time to get online, download, stream, whatever you've got to do, find the band on their social medias, give them a like and a follow. Also, if you like physicals, jump online, grab a vinyl, grab a CD, maybe grab some merch. And also, if you're somewhere where this band are playing, get down, show Adam and the boys some love, and get in that fucking pit. Also got to take this moment again to thank Adam. Thank you so much, brother. Much love, much respect, much appreciated. Look forward to talking again soon. Can't wait to touch base and do a part two. And that's it. That's The Mosh Zone, episode 94. Done, dusted, all wrapped up locked away for this week. Guys, if you're a first-time listener, thank you for tuning in. I hope you come back over future weeks on future episodes. If you're a regular listener, thank you as always for tuning in and hope you come back in future weeks. This time of the show is when I remind you that we need your help to get out to more listeners. So, If you've got a few moments this week and you enjoyed this episode, share it on your social medias. Also, tell everyone you know about the Mosh Zone. Help us out. Help us grow this Mosh Zone community. Also, at this time of the show, I need to remind you that if you want to find Mosh News and Mosh Reviews, we have it all on our website and social medias. Our website is www.themoshzone.com. Our social medias are all at The Mosh Zone and you can find us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Also, don't forget, you can also get in touch through our email address, which is themoshzone at gmail.com. Get in touch, guys. Help us grow this Mosh Zone community. There's not much else to talk about. That is all of my rambling done. Thank you for tuning in. Have a great week. Stay safe. Open the pitch.